What's he doing up there, they're wondering. Morning, everybody. Um, so we're on our third week now, I think, yes, of our series looking at the ecclesia, which is the Greek word for what we sometimes call church, but as I've said over the last couple of weeks, extremely unhelpful word, has all sorts of uh, religious uh, overtones. It has a, um, in people's minds, it has a kind of, uh, what would you say, religious institutional look to it. Um, sometimes for some people associated with cathedrals and um, uh, clergy and priesthoods and sacrifices and all sorts of different uh, things uh, associated with that. And what we've been looking at is actually in the New Testament vision is that Jesus did not come to create a new religion. He did not come to replace all the other religions with a proper one. Instead, he came with God's grand purpose to bring salvation into the world, to rescue us from the powers of sin and death and the things which oppress us and the means by which we oppress each other and to introduce, through the coming of the Holy Spirit, a whole new humanity, as Ephesians put it. And so what we've been looking at is, first of all, thinking when we talk about ourselves here as a Christian community is to have in mind, I guess you would say, a theology rather than simply a list of preferences of how we gather together. What we want to do is actually think about what are our Christian convictions, what are the central theological themes and ideas, the practices that we see in Scripture, so the ways that we can actually reframe our minds, renew our minds and think about how we can uh, both be faithful to Scripture but also be adaptable to our mission here in the 21st century. And that's where we're going to be ending up. So at the moment, we've talked about some of the big theological themes of what it means to be uh, the people of God, what is our identity, what's the destiny towards which we're headed, what is the vocation that we have in the present. And that should be the thing, particularly our vocation, that shapes the way that we think about gathering together as a Christian community, the church. And then last week, um, for those who weren't here, uh, we looked at the book of Acts and a little bit of First Corinthians, where we found out that actually there's not a lot of mentions about what a Christian uh, gathering looks like in the New Testament. We basically have two, one which we just read out there, which is a kind of a, a broad uh, and virtually um, slightly idealised, you might say, a vision of what the Christian community is about. And then at the end of Acts, Acts chapter 20, some of those themes popping up again in a house church as Paul uh, meets together with the uh, Christians at Ephesus and um, dialogues with them through the night. The famous story, of course, we remember with a, the young lad falls out of the window. Um, often the butt of jokes of long preachers, but primarily the words used there actually reflect the idea of a discussion. As I said last week, if you have the Apostle Paul there, you're not going to like give him everyone 20 minutes, including him. You're going to like let him, you're going to pepper him with questions and ask all sorts of things. But interestingly, looking at different translations, we saw that uh, the NRSV in particular brought out that dialogue um, aspect. In First, uh, First Corinthians, yeah, we uh, looked at, and I think a few people were scared I was going to uh, start breaking out in speaking in tongues. We talked about First Corinthians 14 and the open meeting. So in the early uh, Christianity, and, the, and certainly in Paul's churches, in those communities that he set up, fundamentally you had two things. You had a meeting around the Lord's table, and as part of that meeting, you might say, 
an openness for any member to actually bring something forth, a word of encouragement, a teaching, a song, um, or, any, or a tongue, or interpretation, uh, a prophecy, any number of different um, things. But everyone was encouraged to be involved. And the problem in Corinth, in two instances, is not that they shouldn't have eaten together, it's that they did so poorly, which we will look at probably next week, maybe this week if there's time. And then secondly, it wasn't a problem that everyone got to contribute, it was that everything had to be done in order. So don't interrupt everybody, anybody else, don't butt in and say, oh, I've got a more special word, although Paul actually does give a couple of instructions about something urgent and revelatory that might be given to somebody. But it's all about order because God is the God of peace, harmony in the Christian community. So we want to look at this idea of the centrality, particularly of the table and the context in which the open meeting happened. So what I'm doing now is um, teaching. We're not going to do preaching. So it means we're going to go slowly through some, some things. And this is to prepare us mostly for, um, for next week. But part of um, any good um, movie or whatever else uh, that you watch is that sometimes you need a bit of a origin story or a backstory to understand where something is coming from. Sometimes you can jump into something and it's, there seems to be conversations happening already, you're not sure what's happening, what the meanings of certain words are, etc. It's good to get someone's backstory, some flashbacks, you might say. And the New Testament is a little bit like that for us, particularly reading the stories of Jesus. We're getting flash, we get flashbacks to look at the story of Jesus to actually understand who it is that we are. We see the history, the story of Jesus, so that we don't construct our own version of who Jesus is. So what we're going to do now is we're going to look at the idea of the Lord's table. Sometimes people talk about the Eucharist, some people talk about the Lord's Supper, um, some people talk about communion, etc. And all these are variations on, I guess, this early idea of what it means to gather together at the Lord's meal, at the Lord's table. So let's get a bit of backstory, shall we? Let's get a bit of a sense of what this is about. Promising. There we go. Okay, I'll just quickly run through what we're going to be looking at, just so you know uh, what's coming up. We'll see how far we get. I'm not going to keep you long today. I've heard that before. So looking at the story of Jesus, we're going to look at a few different things, a few different themes. And I'm drawing on some scholarship um, looking at some of these ideas, okay? You might say, well, I just want the straight Bible. Well, we get our Bible, we get the translations, etc., through the work of scholars, okay? And so discerning the work of scholars is a good thing. And I think you'll find it helpful just to illuminate and summarise some of the things that we have here. We're going to be looking at the kingdom of God and what table fellowship looks like in that context. We're going to look at the idea of the Jubilee and the Messianic Age very quickly. Okay. Uh, we're going to be looking at um, Jesus feeding the multitudes in about 30 seconds. Uh, this is important, the idea of symposiums and banquets in the Gospels and in the later New Testament. We'll talk briefly about the Lord's Supper, of course. A quick comment or two about the differences that we see in the Gospel of John, which are very different to what you see in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke. 
And yes, what does Jesus do when he's raised from the dead and encounters his disciples? And I think what we're going to find out, well, I know already, is that in all these things, Jesus eats a lot. Jesus goes about preaching, healing, signs, wonders, and eating. And this is important to who Jesus is, what his mission is, and the community that he wants to gather together. Okay. So let's start quickly with the first. All right. So the kingdom of God and this idea of table fellowship. As I said, in parables, in the stories of Jesus, etc., time and time again, Jesus comes back to looking at what happens when believers gather together at the table. The, the concept of believers is going to be a bit contested, of course, in the, in the Gospels. Who's included? Who's left out? Um, who's allowed to be there? Who get, does anyone get honoured above other people? Etc. How one meets together at the table says a lot about the community of which you're a part. Okay? Who's at the margins? Who's included at the centre? Is, should there be a centre? What does it look like? So just to give you a context again for Jesus, is living in, and I've mentioned this a little bit before, think about the uh, message we had a little while back about the holiness of God and the people of God as the holy people of God. In Jesus' context, this is, a, again, a very contested concept. How is the reign of God going to come into the world? The promised kingdom... How is Israel going to be ready to receive it? Or is there anything that Israel can do to actually help, as it were, bring it into the world? And so you had people, uh, Jews, who would go out into the desert, into little sects. You've probably heard of a place called Qumran. You may have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls and things like that. And in Jesus' time, there are people who have met out in the desert and they're waiting for the kingdom of God to come, maybe with a bunch of angels with flaming swords, etc., to kick out the Romans and to establish God's people. So there's a whole lot of different sectarian people there. But they will go out and they'll start a community, but they'll do it apart from everybody else. Part of what they do, of course, is to gather together, wash themselves for ritual purity, and eat together in anticipation of what they expected to be what we call the messianic banquet. Thinking back to uh, Isaiah, chapter, is it 26 or 25, Dama? One of those two. Um, I think it's 26. <laughs> the Messianic banquet where uh, there's an expectation when the kingdom of God arrives that people will gather together in a, um, a community of God's people to share, to celebrate uh, the goodness of God, good food and good wine, it says. Um, and that's what was expected. And so these communities would actually, as part of this, meet together for a meal to symbolise and, in a sense, anticipate what was to come. You think, well, that's interesting, but maybe in your minds already you're thinking, hmm, I think that reminds me of something else in the New Testament. And then, of course, you had the Pharisees who didn't go out into the desert but actually wanted all of this sort of thing, anticipation of the kingdom of God to be among all of God's people. And so that's why they were so finicky about so many different things. What, 25? So I was wrong. Um, 25. Uh, so they wanted all of Israel to actually participate in God's holiness, there's practices which demonstrated that they were God's holy people. And they had so many different rules because they just wanted to try to hem everybody in to make sure they were doing 
precisely what was to happen in terms of holiness practice. As Jesus says, actually, in, a, in effect, you've missed the point. You've worried about tithing, for instance, and now you're tithing your mint and so forth, which could be sarcasm from Jesus, I hope so, um, or else just going, just really literally over the top in terms of following a practice beyond what scripture, what the Torah, what the law actually told them to do. But again, the idea was we need to gather people of God together to live a life which exhibits God's purity and therefore when you meet together to eat that should also be exhibited. Again, if you're a good gospel reader you might be thinking, aha, I think I see a problem coming up for Jesus and the Pharisees. All right, so now Jesus uh, in this first century world comes in with a very different uh, sense of table practice, doesn't he? But likewise, with the Pharisees, with the Essenes and unsectarians, he is concerned about the renewal of Israel. He gathers 12 disciples around, symbolising the 12 tribes. He is, as will be revealed, the Messiah, the King of this renewed Israel. He's concerned with purity, but true purity. Pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, they will see God. And he's interested in seeing that truthfully, not the kind of shadow which is concerned with um, rules and food, uh, what types of food you can eat and so forth. And his vision inquired a radical reinterpretation of how one was to enter into and participate in the life of God's coming kingdom. And you might remember stories like in Luke's Gospel um, with Zacchaeus and that salvation has come into this household and they gather together and they eat and restitution is promised to be made and so forth. A great occasion of salvation being realised in the midst of table fellowship. And table fellowship, meeting together as a community like this, is how Jesus often proclaimed, but also demonstrated the forgiveness he's proclaiming. So he's not just out there going, you know, bless you, you're forgiven, I'm moving on. He gathers them in together as a community. He brings together people who wouldn't normally meet together because of these purity rules and so forth. He's saying, no, this salvation transcends all of what you've seen before and understood before. All right, there we go. Let's quote a scholar. So this is uh, Scott uh, Barchi. This is an important one to, uh, to remember, to think about what's happening when we read the New Testament and what we'll see when we look at um, the Lord's table later on that in a culture in which symbolic action meant far more than it usually does in the Western world, Jesus' contemporaries immediately understood his acceptance of outcasts into his table fellowship as a claim of authority to forgive them and to grant them worth before God, placing them on the same level with the righteous. So Luke chapter 15 there, um, make a note, write that one down, you remember that one. What is it with this guy? He eats with tax collectors and sinners. That big controversy that uh, you see in Luke and also uh, sometimes in Matthew. So what's happening there? What is this practice of table fellowship? It's a practice of community formation. It's important what Jesus does here. He brings people together to eat and to share a meal not just uh, like, you know, what sort of food do you like? Do you, do you know how to Brussels sprouts or whatever? And then you're off. 
It's actually a gathering, spending time together, sharing um, what one owns and has, particularly with those who do not have. The implication, of course, in sharing, and this is what upsets the Pharisees, is for them, Jesus is sharing in their world. You're going to meet the tax collectors and sinners, you must be one of them. Instead, Jesus is bringing them in to be part of his world. Now, just want to make a quick note here about as good Protestants. The word sinners, you shouldn't read um, with a kind of a, a looming definition from Romans where we all just say, oh, well, we're all sinners. So, you know, isn't it good that Jesus likes sinners? Tax collectors, not sure about that. Nobody likes tax collectors. A sinner in this context is somebody who has stepped outside the bounds of what is acceptable in terms of purity. So everyone who's a Gentile, which I take as probably everyone here today, um, is automatically a sinner because you're outside of God's people and you're outside of the, what's needed in terms of purity to approach God. So you're on the outside. Um, the sinners and tax collectors here are Jewish people largely who have fallen outside of the purity exclusion. Sometimes, well, tax collector, you're a collaborator with Rome. Um, and then there are others, the, um, the prostitutes and others that we sometimes see, but also a larger group of people who are not just they are bad people, but they have fallen outside of the purity rules and so forth. And so they are sinners. So Jesus here in table fellowship brings people into his world, his contagious holiness. Rather than it being like we saw in the Old Testament a few weeks ago, it was like touch anything that's dead or the wrong thing and you become unclean. For Jesus reaches out and people become welcome and clean. The leper is touched, it's now cleansed. Go and show yourself to the priests and be brought back in among God's people. Okay, let's look at the next one. Okay, Jubilee and the Messianic Age. Sorry, we're doing, talking about Lord's Table? Okay, well, let's see if we can sense a connection here. Scholar number two. This is Scott McKnight. The very things that Jesus did in his ministry, the healing and inclusion of the downtrodden, were the very things expected of the age of salvation in the Isaiah tradition. So we already mentioned one, Isaiah uh, chapter 25, not 26. And um, the idea, the expectation, again, that God will bring Israel back from exile, that God will, in fact, establish his kingdom and reign and be seen to be king, be seen to be the true God um, in the world. And as part of that, God will lift up those who have been downtrodden and oppressed by um, Persians, Babylonians, any number of people, now the Romans, etc. Scholar number two says, similarly, just so you know, we're not just sort of picking and choosing and making stuff up. After Peter's confession at Caesarea Philippi, you remember that one? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Every act of eating and drinking with the master is the table fellowship of the redeemed community with the redeemer, a wedding feast, a pledge of a share in the meal of the consummation. The consummation being the age to come where God brings everything together, that healing is, is uh, 
received in its fullness, where there is um, harmony and peace among people, where judgment and salvation comes in its fullness and we enter into an eternity of God's goodness. A pledge to share in the middle of the consummation. One of the things that we've... Um, that we talk about sometimes is the idea of the forgiveness of sins. Now, this will be a little bit controversial, but not too much really, but maybe a little. So before you sort of leap up and, and shout something, um, let's hold it back for a sec. The idea of forgiveness of sins, when we look at the, um, both the Old and New Testament, does relate to each person and their approach to God. But often when we talk about the forgiveness of sins in the New Testament in the Gospels, is we're also looking at this idea about the coming kingdom and the things that are blocking, it seems, the coming of that kingdom into the world. So we often see this idea of waiting for the end of the exile. Now, the Jews have come back, you might say physically in a lot of ways, uh, back into the land. And you remember the prophets talking about, oh, we're going to build this great big temple and... And valleys will be, you know, filled and mountains will be knocked down and there's quite a lot of, you know, very um, uh, expressive uh, language about this amazing thing that's going to happen. And then nothing much really happens. And so we read the book of Daniel, it's like, ah, oh, maybe the exile's not over. It's like uh, 70 times 7 da, 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 number of years actually. And so what we're waiting for is a kind of full return from exile, not just coming back from Babylon, but where everything, as I said before, is like the consummation, where Israel will be fully rescued, the pagan gods will be shown to be uh, empty, hollow nothings, um, the powers that be in the world, the empires and so forth, will be shown to be um, foolish parodies of the kingdom of God. But what is needed is the forgiveness of sins. And when the forgiveness of sins comes, there's the end of exile, the end of estrangement and distance from God. God, at the end of history, will restore the fortunes of Israel and he will do so by forgiving Israel's sins, healing her iniquities, removing her transgressions. If you uh, love to look at Bible verses after the sermon, I'm just going to shoot them all off. We're not going to go through them all. But um, Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34... 33, 4 to 11. Ezekiel, 36, 24 to 26. And verse 33. Ezekiel, 37, 21 to 23. Isaiah, 41 to 2. And 43, verses 25 to 44. Sorry, 44, verse 3. And lastly, Daniel chapter 9, 16 to 19. Now, Jesus is offering this forgiveness to the people of Israel that this messianic, isianic salvation is coming. And he's offering it to each person within Israel. Context, Israel, people of God, and like we've talked about in terms of um, the church, the body of Christ, and its members in particular. 
He also talks about, and this, if you've got a King James version, um, interestingly, he talks about the idea of forgiveness of debts, which can be a metaphor for sin, and, um, but also, in the first century, debt is actually a real problem. So a lot of those talks we shouldn't immediately spiritualise, but also think, okay, what does that actually look like? What is the kind of economic liberation that Jesus might be bringing, um, and how would he be doing so? How would people be rescued from a crushing debt from landowners and tenants, uh, sorry, yeah, landowners and so forth? Okay, what does that look like though? Well, gee, that's so hard to see back there. Forgive us our debts. Okay. And this is the theme of Jesus' parables, as I've said. We're doing an overview here. We can go back and look at any of uh, these things at our leisure another time. All right. Luke chapter 4, 18 to 19. You'll remember that. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, he says, in a Jewish synagogue near the beginning of his ministry. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Recovery of sight to the blind healing to the brokenhearted, etc., and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord, which is another way of talking about the Jubilee in the book of Leviticus. Now, the interesting thing is that here Jesus doesn't say, I'm here to fulfil the law and therefore we're going to institute here in Israel the Jubilee. And you remember what the Jubilee is? Where at the end of 50 years, property starts to revert back to its original owners, landowners in Israel. Okay, so there's all that stuff about if you owe, you know, owe somebody some uh, money, don't think <laughs> Jubilee's coming in six months and I won't have to pay it back because all the debts and everything are going to be forgiven and we'll be okay. Likewise, if you're a lender, don't go, six months of Jubilee, I'm not going to get this money back, I'm not going to lend it. So, what is this idea about uh, restitution and uh, restoration of property and so forth? It's a great metaphor, of course, for what the kingdom of God provides, but is there something uh, more that's happening here as well? Okay. So, so anti Rhino, I've quoted before. When we talk about this acceptable year of the Lord and Jubilee, is it just vivid imagery, charged metaphorical way of speaking about a different sort of reality, just a spiritual one, so it's just a spiritual metaphor, don't worry about your money or anything like that at all. Won't be touched, just about the spiritual things. And then Wright says, why do we say it either has to be um, a metaphor or it like has to be the actual institution of Jubilee? Why must it be that all Israel observes Jubilee or else it's just a spirituality? So here's an alternative. And again, I want you to think about the New Testament church when you read this as well, Okay. It doesn't allow for the possibility that Jesus intended his people, those who are loyal to him in the villages and towns, to form cells, groups or gatherings, much as the non-Kumarana scenes we mentioned before, or John's disciples seem to have done, and the Charles Butan, such as the Habrim groups of Pharisees must have done, if this suggestion is anywhere near the mark, good scholarly caution there, it opens the possibility that although Jesus did not envisage that he would persuade Israel as a whole to keep Jubilee year, he expected his followers to live by the Jubilee principle among themselves. So in some way or another, if he's right there, 
Jesus saw part of what happens in salvation as having a material effect and had something to do with sharing our goods. So if only we could find something in the New Testament which backed that up. Oh, there it is. Okay, we just read this before. Now, Acts chapter 2 isn't just this kind of super enthusiastic early Christians who, hey, let's get together with the apostles' teaching and break bread and whatever, I'm going to share all their stuff around and, and sort of over-exuberant um, spirituality. There is a deep theology that lies behind this. There is a story that lies behind this. And the early Christians saw that they were living in time of fulfilment. The last days, the spirit had been poured out and this is a reflection of how they understand this jubilee principle amongst them. If now is the accepted time, now is the day of salvation, here in a material way, um, we can see, I think, the early Christians understanding who they are and what salvation looks like. Not just this, of course. Don't be reductionistic. But don't exclude it. Don't be a dualist. Don't say spirituality and salvation is spiritual. Other stuff, material things, don't matter. In the story of the Bible, all of this stuff matters. Okay. Let's turn to Luke chapter 22 and look at verses 24 to 27. I'm going to skip the feeding in the wilderness except to say two things. Um, the provision of food and everything for, for people was one of the signs of the arrival of the Messiah and the miraculous feeding in the wilderness um, was a sign of that. And, of course, you might remember what happened then is that everyone wanted to make him king by force. Grab him. We're going to crown him the king. The kingdom of God's going to come right now. All right, but this next one, symposiums and banquets. So the idea here, the idea of the symposium is uh, basically where people would get together, they would eat, and you might notice an unusual phrase in um, the New Testament time, time talking about somebody reclining and even Jesus reclining. And so what happened in the first century is a lot of the Greek practice of having banquets and symposiums had been taken on by even the most orthodox, you might say, of Jews, okay? And the idea of a symposium was you would have uh, the meal, as, as I said, and you would often have, in the Greek situation and sometimes in the Jewish one, you would invite someone to come and speak. So when people, uh, you might see like the Pharisees, etc., invite Jesus to come and meet with them, it's not just, again, roast potatoes, good, you like? Come on. Uh, it's, we want to hear from you, so come join our group here, um, eat together and tell us who you are, what you're about, etc. So it's within that first century setting, influenced by the Greeks, of symposiums and banquets and that as well. So Luke chapter 22, verse 24... In the context of 
eating, drinking, and benefactors, and so forth. Just notice here. And this is in the middle of the institution of the Lord's Supper, as my study Bible heads it. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. But he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. Not so amongst you. Rather, the greatest among you must become like the, like the youngest and the leader, like one who serves. Who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one at the table? But I am among you as one that serves. And then, you who have stood by me in my trials, I confer on you just as my Father has confirmed on me a kingdom, so that you may eat and drink at the table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, so thinking ahead, this is like looking forward to what salvation will look like, what the um, kingdom of God fully coming into the world will be, and what have we got in there? We've got this idea of um, serving at the table and, and so forth as well, reflecting what they're actually doing there. There's also this notion, again, of the table which is to come, the meeting and eating together in the Messianic kingdom, judging the 12 tribes of Israel even. So just keep that one in your, in your mind for the moment. Think about the one who reclines is the uh, literal one there, not just the one who's at the table, the one who reclines at the table and then the one who serves. We'll come back to that when we, oh no, I'll mention it now. Let's just jump ahead of um, the Last Supper and think about what we see in John. In the Gospel of John, what, um, what does the Last Supper look like in the Gospel of John? Anyone recall? What was that? So, who was that? Dorothy. So. Well, so we have the foot washing of uh, by Jesus, but we don't actually have an account of the Lord's Supper per se, do we, in the way that we would see in the rest of the Gospels? Yet, somehow or another, surely that is reflective of part of what Jesus is doing here uh, in the Last Supper. And you can see a glimpse of it there in Luke as well. In John's Gospel, you have very early on this idea where Jesus says, if anyone wants to be, basically be with me, which I'd say is like a discipleship identification, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. It's not the walking dead or some other zombie show here, nothing like that. But I tell you what, it offended all the people there and a whole bunch of his uh, wannabe disciples left, abandoned him at that point. Um, one of the Jesus' great uh, church growth moments. Narrowing down to the faithful, the ones who would actually follow. I think the significance of that, though, is that we're supposed to read the whole of John's Gospel with that in mind. The sharing in Jesus' death, his blood and body, in the same way as the Synoptic Gospels might talk about, take up your cross and follow after me. All right, let's look at... The Last Supper. Again, backstory for when First Corinthians 14. So what kind of meal did they eat together? As you can see there. Held on the day before Passover, we think, according to John's Gospel. 
It's literally, uh, legitimately seen as Jesus' celebration of the Passover meal. So the back, if the Lord's Supper is the backstory, so the Last Supper is the backstory for the Lord's Supper, the Exodus is the backstory for the Last Supper. And here we see what? As you can see there, the Passover meal is a memorial of the uh, Exodus event. The Exodus story is the big story in the Old Testament. Not Genesis, or Genesis 1 to 11, which appeals to us. The big story that's continually referred back to is the story of oppression of Israel in Egypt and God's mighty deliverance of them. So the Passover meal becomes a freedom meal, remembering the mighty acts of Yahweh delivering the tribes of Israel from the Gentile oppressors, forming them into a holy nation, as we've been talking about earlier, with an inheritance. Not merely a recollection of history, but a symbolic connection with those past events. So if you've ever been invited to a, um, a cedar meal, etc., there's a lot that happens which is like a kind of a mini reenactment of what it's like to get ready to pack up, go and to leave um, Egypt. And so people will read out different parts of the Exodus story. It's kind of a dramatic and partial reenactment or recital of the original meal, making the significance of those events contemporary. A remembrance, maybe, or a better way to put it, maybe, is also a celebration, a memory in order to celebrate and bring its significance into the present. Now, if you're a first century Jew under Rome, and you've just watched the triumphal entry of Jesus uh, into, into Jerusalem on a donkey, this kind of messianic um, expectations running high. Well, what else do we see? The inference of a covenant, a new covenant. So those texts that I read out before are full of that. And then, as I said before, all of these things must have had some sort of resonance for them about Israel's full return from exile. So Isaiah and so forth recounts the Exodus idea with the idea of there will be a new Exodus that will actually be delivered from all of the pagan empires. And there will be an establishment of a new Israel. But Jesus' words, of course, are shocking and he refers to his own broken body and his blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And then the meal itself is followed by his betrayal, his arrest, and the climax of his vacation as the suffering Messiah. So not only is there bringing the past into the present, the Exodus, looking forward to a new Exodus, there's also a future orientation as well, which you'll remember. Jesus says at this time, to do this as often as you meet and remember me, celebrate it, until the kingdom of God, which is coming in the future. What happens then? Well, here's Jesus is killed. Uh, he set them up to try to help them to understand what is happening. It's unexpected. It's not the way they thought it would all happen. But he is raised from the dead. And what's some of the first things that Jesus actually does? 
one thing that he does is uh, while the uh, disciples have basically have heard rumours of maybe something has happened, but they go out to fish all night, go back to their old trade, as it were, don't catch anything, and then on the beach, they see a figure there um, with a fire and fish, um, and Peter, of course, bolts in, so forth to see Jesus, excited to actually see him. And the first thing that they do is they eat together. Whoopie-doo. But think back to what we just read before. And well, so large of eating together, sharing together, being one with each other is significant. And then there's the other story, which you might remember from the end of Luke's Gospel, where there's two disciples, uh, not none of the apostles, but two disciples walking along and... Um, talking about we really thought this one was the one who was going to redeem Israel. This is the one that was going to save us all. And they meet a guy on the road who they don't recognise and they ask them, what, what are you talking about? And they say, and then they stop off together at a table and Jesus, unrecognised to them, breaks the bread with them. And at that moment, they recognise who he is, and, um, but then he disappears. Um, but it's interesting that one of the first things that Jesus does is gathers his people together, gathers his community together, and breaks bread as he had done so at the Last Supper. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for the new covenant. All right, so to finish, like I said, this is teaching. We'll get stuck into a bit more normative and pound-the-table stuff next week when we look at 1 Corinthians 14. But I want you to think about what we've seen here today, the importance of Jesus' table fellowship throughout his ministry. It's not just an incidental. It's not just the context. It's actually part of his formation of this new community, a community which draws together people from outside the norms the people who are not accepted, the people who are on the margins, are brought together into this one community together. For Jesus and this community he's building, shaped around his central disciples, he says, recalling the Exodus, thinking about the new Exodus that Israel was hoping for, and looking forward to the kingdom of God which he was bringing into the world through his death and his resurrection, kingdom which is to come. We are a community that is to be shaped by these events. When we look at the Lord's table, this is the tradition, of course, it gets brought forward to the early Christians to break bread and so forth in the context of a meal. To jump ahead to next week a little bit, I think it's very safe to say, as many scholars and others do, I don't think Jesus ever actually envisaged a little sip and a morsel of bread as being summing up the entire meaning of table fellowship. Now, we'll talk about how and why sometimes we do this, but we'll also look at why, as a practice overall, that's insufficient to actually convey the meaning of what Jesus is talking about here. We need to rediscover for ourselves the meaning of table fellowship. The early church gathered around the table, ate together, shared together, 
as we said last week, there's a lot of different things that happen in terms of teaching and gifts and things like that. They can happen in that context. We're not slaves to that context. It doesn't have to look like a particular way, but we want to understand the theology behind it and be willing to adapt, do we not, our practices to actually more fully embody what the New Testament has given us. So we're going to have communion now, which is a kind of derivation, you might say, from the Lord's table that has some of its meaning inherent in it. But this is not the fullness of practice of what Jesus intended. It's not the fullness of practice of what Paul or the apostles attended either. Okay. Um, it has meaning, it has significance, but don't imagine for a moment that what we're about to do is precisely what they were doing in the New Testament. Okay. Um, so I'd like to pray for us now, and then we'll gather to come forward, gather together uh, around this table, and uh, give thanks to the great salvation that God has brought into the world, forgiveness of sins, and the coming of the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for being our privilege of being part of this great story of what you are doing in the world through history, from the time of the patriarchs through to the formation of Israel's rescue from Egypt, settling in the land, the rise of its kings, the debacle of the exile, but your promise to your people to, to rescue them. We thank you that we now as Gentile people have been incorporated into this rescued people. We thank you for your death on the cross, your life of faithfulness that led up to that as a suffering Messiah, for the forgiveness of sins and opening up through your resurrection life, a new creation to come into the world. We thank you for the pouring out of your spirit. We thank you that we can look forward now as we remember your death and proclaim your death until you come, that we look forward to that future time of the kingdom of God in its fullness. Keep us faithful, keep us strong in faith, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please come and join me up at the, at the table. Those of us who are not a people are now.